This is the EPLOG audio experience. Film is clearly a sophisticated art, possibly the most important art of the 20th century with a rather complex history of theory and practice, writes James Monaco in his book How to Read a Film. So far in our podcast, The Artists, we have had filmmakers, writers, critics, programmers, musicians, thinkers, defining their combinatorial skills. We at Metaphysical Lab have been striving to expand the realm of our podcast, which in turn gives a wider uh, canvas to the understanding of our experiences. And also we have tied up with Epilogue Media, the podcasting network. So you can find us on their website, Epilogue Media slash The Artist. And of course, you can continue to listen to us on the platforms that you choose from Apple Podcasts to Spotify to GeoSavon to Google Podcasts. Everything is mentioned in the description. I'm your host. Suchita and I'm looking forward to a wonderful journey ahead with all of you. Hi guys, hope you all have been keeping well and taking good care of yourself and most importantly being happy. That is also what our podcast episode for today is about. The key to growing is keeping yourself sane and happy as artists. And a quick confession, we're running a bit slow on our podcast due to some unforeseen circumstances, but we are catching up. Uh, no, we're not going anywhere, but right here with all of you. So welcome to the soulful 106th episode of The Artist with me, Sachita. Our guest for today is the wonderful Anjal Nigam. Anjal is an actor, writer and producer who has done work in such acclaimed shows like Grey's Anatomy, Never Have I Ever and movies like Terminator Salvation. You just need to google Anjal Nigam and find out what all work he has done. And you can also find him on his LinkedIn, Twitter and Insta handles, Anjal Nigam. We talk paving way for yourself as an actor with purpose, persistence and perseverance. But most importantly, being true to whatever you're doing and finding your own path. get inspired Hi Anjul welcome to our podcast the artist and thank you for joining in Thank you for inviting me thanks for having me uh, as I wind my day uh, down it's great to be able to uh, have a conversation with somebody in India as they start their day hopefully hopefully I'll start your day off on the right foot Absolutely Tell me, Anjal. I mean, you've acted in so many films in Hollywood. I was checking it out on the net, and I was like, "Wow!" But I've never seen you in an Indian film, and you've been an Indian, American now in Hollywood. Did you get yeah, any offers? Uh, how How does that go? Uh, never have I ever seen you in a Bollywood movie, right? Uh, <laughs> I uh, I came to the states. Look, my my story is I came to the states when I was. uh very young i was 2 years old mm-hmm. uh my parents brought uh myself and my two older brothers mm-hmm. when we were 2 3 and 4 years old and we came to the states with the expectation that we were only going to be here for about a year but of course you know how it is life intervenes you settle in you you buy a house you have a mortgage you have kids <laughs> kids end up going to school they have no intention to go back to the homeland that's known as your homeland mm-hmm. you know for me I grew up in Connecticut and when I moved out to LA, Los Angeles 33 years ago. Uh, mm. I was I was 23, I had just finished New York University. I had a big degree, a bachelor of fine arts in drama and I was like, oh, I'm coming out to Hollywood, right? Yeah. Come out to LA and uh 
and I, I had this intention that I'm going to go back to New York. That was my home by this point. Mm. You know, New York, the energy, my school was there. I had, had spent five years there at NYU and so forth. And, you know, I, I told myself, I'll get here, I'll get established enough, and then I'll, I'll move back to New York. Mm. And um, the, the idea was I'm bi-coastal, right? I remember having on my resume, my agent <laughs> from New York, on the left side and my agents from the, uh, from my new, my new agents in LA on the right side mm. of the resume. And it was like, I loved the idea that I am bi-coastal man. <laughs> and, but of course uh, the years go by, you're no longer represented in New York. Nobody gives a damn about you in New York and mm. not that they ever gave a damn about you here in LA, but you, you know, you hustle, you pound the pavement and you eventually start, um, making a living. And I, and I started mm. making a living after a good three, four years of um, waiting tables, eating ramen noodles and tuna mm. and, uh, you know, um, being what every, uh, every artist has possibly experienced at some time in their career. Uh, for me, it was good to be certainly able to experience that in the earlier part of my career. So. So Anjul, tell me, you have graduated from Tisch School of Thoughts. Yep. Now, we constantly talk about film schools, we talk about art schools, and everyone says so the opinion is divided whether one should be out from a film school or an art school, or one should, you know, just be, you know, constantly working on themselves and find their own art and their own path. Coming out from the School of the Arts, do you think that impacted your way of seeing uh, things, cinema, but also the way your career panned out? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated question in the sense that there's many layers to that. Yes. Um, you know, when you're 18 years old and you grow up in a small town, a suburban town, for me it was in Connecticut, mm -hmm. and you go to New York, and, and I don't know if you know much about the 1980s New York, it was it was crime driven. It was, you know, a lot of like, let's think, talk about Times Square of the 80s. Mm -hmm. It was um, a lot of uh, hookers hanging out. Uh, and this is where we would have at NYU drama program under Tisch School of Arts. We had Monday, Wednesday, Friday was our acting classes in Times Square area. So mm -hmm. we would and, and I don't know if you know much of New York, but New York University, the main campus is at Washington Square Park, which is a little bit more subdued. It doesn't have that fast-paced Times Square energy. But we would get on a subway at 8 in the morning on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and go to take a uh, subway to 42nd Street and be, you know, blown right in our face with, with the energy of New York City. People, mm -hmm. you know, hustling and selling drugs and this and that and hookers coming right over to you and trying to, you know, propose and, you know... Um, pizza shops and this and it was like the energy was phenomenal so when you're 18 years old when you go there you're like a sponge you're absorbing everything and you're you're uh, experiencing life as a young adult as an independent person yeah and you're away from the shelter of the university yeah right and that's what I believe was an integral part of my uh, training as an artist as an actor um, granted, of course, I mean, the NYU's drama program, you're associated with several different studios that are professional studios, well-known studios like Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg, 
yeah. I was at what was known as the Circle in the Square Theater School. Mm-hmm. And um, so they have a very structured training program. You have technique classes, you have voice classes, you have singing classes, jazz, yeah. uh, scene study. Wow. And it's a full, full day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You're getting there at nine, you're finishing at 5 p.m., you're coming back to your NYU campus, rehearsing if you're working in a play or scene classes. And then yeah. Tuesday and Thursdays, you're doing your academic classes, whether it's math or English, yeah. you know, or some, something like that. Um, so for me, the Monday, Wednesday classes, Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes in acting were essentially what was shaping me. The mm-hmm. Tuesdays and Thursdays were the academic classes, which was kind of like an extension of high school, I felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, being in the city where you have an opportunity to go see you know, Death of a Salesman on Broadway with Dustin Hoffman. Wow, yeah. And, and John Malkovich. I mean, these were the idols that we were seeing in, in movies back then. And like for me, one of my uh, inspirations as an actor was Kramer versus Kramer with Dustin yes. Hoffman. Yeah. And when you get to go see them on Broadway in, in between your acting classes, it's, it's phenomenal. It's, uh, it's just a phenomenal experience. And yes. then you're doing the same same scenes, Death of a Salesman, or Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman, you're doing it in scene study class. You yeah. know, and you're like, you're, you're channeling Dustin Hoffman. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all those experiences, which were the most amazing experiences of your early life, has definitely seeped into your, uh, given you a path or shown you a direction uh, while you have been, you know, working. But do you think that if that was not there in your life, your career or your life would have been any different? It's interesting. Ronald Reagan wrote a, wrote a, uh, wrote a book years ago that I picked up. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and, and I remember just opening it and turning to a chapter in the beginning of the book where mm-hmm. he talked about what, how did he end up becoming the president of the United States? And, and you know, he starts off with this, the beginning of it actually happened in a small trajectory where he decided to go and interview for a radio job. Mm. And somehow he ended up getting it. He'd never worked in radio before. One thing led to another. He was a disc jockey on a radio station. And then eventually he transferred into doing, you know, television and, and uh, movies as an actor mm. and so forth. Mm. Um, and, what what kind of touched me about this reminded me of my own experience when I, in our first week of NYU orientation, mm. right? You you go to all these functions, you're meeting people. Yeah. So we were we were a group of five freshmen living in one dorm called the uh, Brittany dorm, mm. and in, in New York on 10th Street, and the five of us we were all drama majors and film majors. And wow. we're going to our orientation event. This is September 1984, to give you a perspective. Wow. Um, and we're going to an orientation event where we're getting on a subway and going to Chinatown and getting off at Canal Street. Mm-hmm. And all five of us, we, we um, get, go downstairs, down the elevator, and we go get to the subway station. We get to the subway station and buy tokens. Back then it was tokens uh, for, a, for, for your subway ride. And I'm the last in line, ready to buy my token. The sub, all my f- four roommates, they've gotten their token. They go through the turnstile and the subway starts coming. And mm-hmm. as the subway's coming, I'm still paying for my token. And I get my token and I start running into this to the turnstile. 
And my friends hop on the subway, my roommates, all four of them, I'm left there all alone, still going through the turnstile. And as I'm going through, my friends are in the subway, they're like, what? And I read it as, we'll meet you at the next stop. But what they actually said was, I found out later, we'll meet you at the Canal Street stop, which was about four stops away or three stops oh. away. So I misread it thinking they're saying we'll meet you at the next stop. So I got, I finally get on the train after theirs departs and I get off at the next stop and they're not there. So mm -hmm. instead of going to Chinatown to canal street, I decide, you know what? I'm not really into it. I'm going to go back to my dorm. I turn around and I go back to my dorm and I spent the night that evening meeting some other people in the dorm lobby and befriending them. And to this day, they're probably the closest friends I've had, mm. not the ones that I wasn't able to join there. Beautiful. There, it's beautiful. You know? Beautiful. So it was an incidental moment, right, in, in our mm. lives where I mm. missed the subway train and I misheard what they said mm. and literally changed the trajectory of my, of my life. You know, in fact, one of, one of the friends who, who I met that evening, you know, mm. to this day, we, we like talk regularly. He lives out here in L.A., Mm. And, uh, you know, where he just sent me a script. He wants me to look at it as a consideration for, for making the movie that he, he's working on, you know? Mm. So here we are, you know, 35 years later. Beautiful. A beautiful, uh, Angel. So let it flow and see. I mean, don't particularly try and control and don't dissect life too much. Just yeah. let it happen. It's beautiful. You've, Tell me, Anjali, you've worked in Grey's Anatomy, which was like one of the most popular shows. Mm -hmm. And uh, most recently, Never Have I Ever, which is again, a big hit uh, internationally. So you've not worked in any Indian productions per se, if... I'm yeah, not, yeah. No, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's, it's not, a, not a choice. Uh, mm. If anyone's out there... <laughs> <laughs> anyone wants to bring me from here yeah, yeah. and uh, uh i don't dance unfortunately um <laughs> no indian cinema is loud but yeah. indian cinema yeah. is not about that and that's it's yeah. the, the ones that's not about dancing that i'd be interested in so yeah um so yeah no i mean it's not out of choice it's i found my footing here mm -hmm. and it's all i really knew and i had access to i got representation agents managers you know you end up um you end up taking going where the work leads you, right? It's, yeah. uh, and it's only when I started producing have I taken a little bit more of a, um, what you call, yeah. we can never control our destinies, but we can certainly guide them in, in hopefully the direction you want them to go to, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and, and I continue to try to guide where I'd like it to go. But at the same time, we're always going to have these kind of wandering paths, wandering yeah. uh, journeys, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 that, that, yeah, again, that coming back to that same point, we can guide our life where it wants to go, wants to go, you know, but, or, or where, we, where we want to take our life to, but it will always be traveling its own, uh, you know, path that we'll yeah. have to choose and perhaps that will happen, you know, coming to your producing in a bit, you know, but, but you've played the characters of Rajiv and Rahul, very common names in Indian films and television shows so how these characters Rajiv and Rahul sort of pans out uh, in a Hollywood production how do they conceive do well, they yeah. do they talk I mean, a lot with Indian yeah do they it's talk an interesting a lot question. with you 
Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, look, I think uh, when you're a writer, you write about what you know. Yeah. And um, the first generation of Indians who immigrated here were in the 60s or so. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we came in 1967. I was two. Um, wow. So if anyone's doing the math, I'm 56. Mm -hmm. uh, so the thing is, when the first um, use of Indians in cinema started happening in this modern cinema, let's not talk about the 40s or 50s, like uh, 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 Gunga Din or, or any of that. We're not talking about that or Mowgli, the, jung the Jungle Book, the original one, uh, yeah. Sabu. When I'm yeah. talking about those, I'm talking about more modern cinema. Let's talk about the 80s and 90s and yeah. so forth. At that time, the exposure of the Indian immigrants was very limited and it was limited by the writers had perhaps only uh you know interacted with indians in the professional worlds where um it might have been doctors or it might have been uh um cab drivers or convenience store employees or yeah. engineers and so forth yeah, yeah. But when they were when they're a non-indian or non-immigrant and they're writing the story based on what they know if they want somebody who's an outsider, it was an easy, you know, e easy, uh, I guess, creative, uh, uh, creative access to something that they know as an outsider, mm -hmm. right? And granted, it's like uh, names like Raj and Singh are, are as common as they get. But in India, people still keep naming. And even here, they keep naming them Raj, even though your last name is Singh. I don't know why that happens, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you, you, like when you are writing a character who's Latino, it's yeah. common where you'll end up writing Maria. And, and why is that? It's because the one that you grew up with when you thought of it, someone who's most commonly known as uh, a, a Latin person, you might've thought of them as, oh yeah, I know a lot of Marias who are Latin. You yeah, know? yeah. So yeah. how does that name, uh, I think it happens based on what your experiences or the writer's experiences. I mean, ultimately to me, it's not so much about um, what the name is. I, I think that's like a wardrobe piece. Uh, what, what really matters is are the stories, and I think that's certainly happening now, are the stories well-developed around the character you're playing? Are, are they significant enough? Are they rounded and three-dimensional? Are you an integral part of the story? Mm. You know, uh, as one of the writers on a, on a movie that I made called Growing Up Smith, as a, as a producer and as one of the writers and one of the lead actors in it, mm -hmm. my character, we, we named him Oscar. Mm -hmm. yes. B-H-A-A-S-K-A-R. Yeah. Um, and it was a name that I liked. I mean, look, like I think about how when we were naming our kids, I, I my wife and I always uh, fought about what we were going to name our first child. Yeah. And, and we, because I wanted a name that I liked, not the way it sounded, not <laughs> what it meant. It didn't matter to me. You know, so I wanted yeah. to name our, I wanted to name our oldest kid Mission. <laughs> I just liked the name Mission. And I didn't think of it as a name. I thought of it as I like, it's got direction. He's got a mission, you know? Yeah. And, and, then, so and then what happened? We, did, we, didn't, we didn't name a Mission. <laughs> mission Nigam, you know, imagine Mission Nigam, right? <laughs> Yeah. No, also, when I asked the question in, in the sense, 
like coming back to the earlier question, when they talk about Rajiv and Rahul characters in the American shows, are they aware about the Indians and the Indian roots when they write about those characters? Because I recently, uh, there's, there's a big publication that came out with how Indians and Indian characters and in Indian movies are not something that the world or you know the critic the critics uh, focus on as in it's not a central part i mean they'll talk about american films european cinema they'll talk about chinese films and iranian films but the indian films are not spoken and in you know with that kind of uh, uh, regard if i might use the word you know so well, look i think uh, there's a dual edged sword mm. when you're dealing with uh, uh, the idea of Indian cinema, right? There's two sides to yes, it, right? Yes, yes. And, and the dual sword is based on the fact that the masses in India are, are you know, seeking that escapism, hmm. right? Which, they, which you find in Bollywood movies. You end up being yes. in a three-hour movie oh, yes, and you're, totally, you're yeah. enjoying, right? Yeah. Everyone knows about that escapism yeah. uh, theory, yeah. right? Um, and the masses have access to that. Right. Yeah. When you start doing movies where there's um, it's more, you know, let's say it's written in English or it's in a certain specific language, whether it's from North India or South India, and it doesn't have that escapism uh, themes or, or uh, 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 storylines or threads in it, then it unfortunately isn't reaching enough of a populace to be able to have a financial impact where more and more of that is being made and being uh, exposed to the Western or globally as much so uh, mm. as, uh, you know, as, one of, as some of the Bollywood movies might be. Mm. What also ends up happening is the immigrants that are still around in the US mm. or in any part of the country, I mean, any of the uh, world outside of India, mm. there's a... Um, I think there's an affinity to those Bollywood movies because often the immigrants have grown up with that, whether it was when we first planted ourselves in the US, we mm. would have these India associations of America and show these movies like Cholet. I grew up watching Cholet, you know? And I remember when we went to India, it was still playing in the cinemas three years later. And I was <laughs> still like, playing somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> still playing. <laughs> and I remember being in India for two months. I saw yeah. it three times. Wow. You know, three times while yeah. I'm there. So, sure, sure. Anjali, tell me this: you you worked in the Terminator Salvation, which is again that the Terminator franchise. You have worked in theater with Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of the most regarded, yeah. admired actor. Phil and uh, I were friends from our NYU days, believe it or not. So, and what yeah. a great, what a great actor! Yeah. A Merchant of Venice. You've acted with him. Uh, a couple of advice uh, to, advice to you know the actors listening to the podcast in terms of getting work a and b is tell me the singest single if you can possibly tell me the single greatest takeaway from life uh, if i may use the word uh, when it comes to your work your passion towards work and your personal life um well, first of all, I, I believe in, uh, there's many layers to this, but I do believe in something called the three Ps and it's something that I call the three Ps. Mm -hmm. It's uh, patience and perseverance. I mean, patience and persistence will allow you to persevere in this industry, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it's, uh, if you don't have that, then it's, uh, 
it's going to be a challenge. And because it's already a challenge, you add, add another layer of challenge to it because you're not patient and you're not being persistent. Yeah. Um, I've seen many people come out to LA or, you know, enter the, the uh, entertainment industry and have a very short lived lifespan in it. Yes. Um, because the, the coming with a mindset of it's going to happen overnight yeah. is very, very difficult uh, if you don't realize that success overnight. Uh, and very, very few do. Um, however, uh, if you understand that it's a trajectory that hopefully uh, is like any other path, then you also have to recognize it requires the same level of commitment as any other. If you want to be a doctor, you go to med school, you do an internship, you yeah. do a residency program, you might do a fellowship. And, yeah. you know, you've been uh, since college, it becomes like an extra 10 to 15 years until you're a full-fledged doctor able to serve as an attending. Yeah. Um, and those are paying the dues. You're not making that much money in the earlier part of your career as a doctor. Uh, and in the same way here in the entertainment industry, you're going to pay your dues. And the more dues you pay, I think when you actually achieve some level of, uh, I mean, uh, success is such an elusive word, right? Yeah. Uh, when, you, when you achieve some level of, I guess, let's say satisfaction. Yeah. Uh, when you achieve that. Yeah. You can enter this business and say that I'm going to be the next Tom Cruise. And, yeah. and I'll say to you, well, if that's what you're targeting, good luck with that. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, because what's going to happen if you don't and, and, you know, 99.9999% don't. Yes. <laughs> There's only one Tom Cruise out there. Right. Um, yeah. So one needs to define what they're looking for in terms of, is it to be at a place where you make enough income that that's all you're doing. You're not having to do any other uh, yes. source, any other uh, uh, source of income. Yeah. Uh, but also the times have changed. When I first came out to LA, there was no such thing as, I mean, the fax machine had just started. There was no internet, none of that, you know? Mm. So there was no concept of being able to work from home or, or create your own business online or do, you know, be able to be a tutor for someone who's in India or in another country while you're living here and earning income and being able to support yourself. And, and, have that flexibility didn't exist. It was sort of like if you're an actor and you're not making a living as an actor, then you're waiting tables or you're bartending. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's what we did. Um, mm. And then, you know, during the days, you're either auditioning or in an acting class and you're hoping to get that next big gig that's going to take you away from this, this world of survival jobs. Yeah. Uh, I think nowadays people can be entrepreneurs and they don't have to look at making an income as a survival job is sort of like helping you become a well-rounded person. Oh yeah, you got a business that does this, but you've, you're also fully immersed in the entertainment industry. You know, you can do both and you can juggle both without looking at the other side of it as, oh, it's beneath me or it's not really what I wanted to do. Hopefully you'll find happiness in everything you're doing. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, my own path into producing was met with a lot of resistance at first from, um, from my own, you know, in my own inner soul. I was like, 
don't want to produce. It's like, no, I just want to, I want to act. That's all I want to do. However, when I first set out to make my first movie as a um, producer, Growing Up Smith, I fell in love with the, the idea of producing it is because it was a great opportunity for me as, a, as an actor. The role was an incredible role. And I really, really was passionate about in the movie itself that, you know, the story was a phenomenal story, really touched me deeply. I put my own, you know, stamp as a writer on it as well by doing some, you know, uh, rewrites of the script and so forth. And I knew that getting this movie off the ground would not only allow me to be an actor, but also put me in a place where I can make more movies. Mm-hmm. And ultimately that's what producing is about, is being able to put the pieces of the puzzle together, mm-hmm. getting some talent, getting some sales and distribution, getting some money, getting a director and putting it together so that you see an entire uh, you know, something which is a screenplay on paper eventually becomes something that people can go and see in the movie theater. Um, yeah. And yeah, that but, journey, mm, yeah. you know, that journey took me 10 years to do my first movie. Mm, and mm. however, it became incredibly creatively gratifying, which is what I never expected producing to be. Mm, it was creatively mm. gratifying because it's almost like when you do a puzzle, you have all these pieces and you, as you build it and you find where the pieces go, you begin to see a photo, a picture, the puzzle, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a painting or, and, and you begin to see it evolve. And then when you're complete with it, it's, it is so incredibly gratifying. Mm. So from acting to producing and you are doing both simultaneously, when you talk about producing in Hollywood, it's very different than producing in, I would say, Bollywood, you know, or in Indian films. When you're saying you're a producer there, uh, what kind of roles do you take? And uh, how do you sort of uh, go around raising money? Because in India, for, in India, the term producer is for people who already have the money to put the film. Mm, that's uh, interesting. Where, yeah. You know, they say, you, yeah, already, yeah. You, have a, you have a producer in your film, but they don't realize that producing as a, as a terminology is different internationally. The producer is somebody who takes the responsibility of the film in terms of raising and getting the right team together. So how do you well, raise money? I mean, producing uh, the bigger budget movies, sometimes producers, there's various producers that are doing different jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the smaller movies you're doing, uh, as a producer, you might be overseeing many different jobs. And even smaller movies, you may actually be doing all these smaller jobs uh, to make a full job known as the producer. The, I mean, to, to take you through the process of going from A through Z, you start off with a script, let's say, and you bring the pieces together that will make the project financeable. In other words, it's a package of a director, it's written by somebody, it's a high quality script, although the bar in terms of quality, as we know out there is pretty low, it doesn't even have to be high quality, but that's <laughs> the goal, right? Um, so you're, you're putting together these pieces, you're bringing on board name talent that may hopefully uh, excite financiers, may excite distribution, distributors. So, I mean, what you have is you go from development, uh, you put the financing together, meaning the, the you know, the funding, uh, and you yes. put together the talent and the directors and so forth. And mm-hmm. then you start hiring people. What we, I don't know if it's the same terminology, but you hire a line producer who's going to oversee the day-to-day operations of the movie. Yeah. Uh, and they help put together the crew base and so forth. 
Uh, and you, you know, as a producer, you're working with the director and assembling the department heads, meaning the cinematographer, the editor, the production designer, the first AD, the AD's team, the assistant director team, um, and, you know, props and, and so forth. Yeah. Um, and you assemble these teams and you, you know, uh, during pre-production, all of these components start coming together and start planning the actual shoot. And then all of that is coming together. And then you might be a producer who's on uh, in the marketing and publicity when you're delivering the movie to a distributor. Somebody from the production team, a producer has to oversee that and making sure that the yeah. distributor is still consistent with the vision that the director. Yeah. So, so do you uh, get a distributor while you are shooting or do you always, that uh, depends <laughs> on the project? It depends on the project. Yeah, and also yeah. going back to the producing, it depends on the project for me. Am I sometimes overseeing all of it from A through Z? Yeah. Generally speaking on a smaller project, yes. And as the projects get bigger, then there's different producers doing different jobs. I mean, there might be as yeah. many, many as five, six producers. Um, for me, uh, I like being at the point of a project where, um, look, I'll do some work that's a work for hire and it's not my baby. Uh, it's not something that I was there from the beginning, mm -hmm. uh, but other projects I'm involved with as a producer, I'm there from the beginning. I'm working with the writer and the director. This current movie that we just announced, yeah. uh, I don't know how much you know, but I just uh, started a partnership with Alec Baldwin. Yeah. Uh, this is where, and we're launching our company with uh, our fifth movie together. And the fifth movie that we're doing is, is a movie that I had just been brought on board by the writer director he mm. knew my work as a as a producer reached out yeah. to me i came on board and i spent about a month developing the script with him getting it to a point where it'll be interesting i mean uh it might be it, i needed to get it to get it to a place where when we go to star name talent the response is going to be competitive with everybody else yeah you know that's submitting submitting movies to these people yeah uh, yeah so what we ended up doing is we developed the script for about a month. Uh, and then we went to Alec uh, and uh, he came on board and that, you know, got the ball rolling with the financing and the distribution side. Uh -huh. And now we're at a stage where we're about to go into pre-production probably within a month, a month and a half. Nice. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the money's coming into place because Alec is on board. We're able to get the distribution and other yeah. talent is now coming on board as well. Sure. Uh, so it's a process, granted. Uh, but again, you know, as I mentioned, my first one took me 10 years. Now it becomes more about my goal being, you know, to do two to three movies in a year. Yeah, uh, lovely. Hopefully I, uh, I'll, you know, direct as well. And that's that's beginning to enter my my mind to say, hey, let me let me uh, get behind the camera as a, on a creative side as a director. Lovely, lovely. And tell me what is the toughest part of being a producer versus the toughest part of being an actor. The actor's job is a work for hire and you're fulfilling somebody else's vision. Mm -hmm. So if you're uh, coming from it from the perspective of, let me help you deliver your vision, then mm -hmm. the actor's job is just the, and it's not just, but you know, it, it's, bringing the life of the character from the pages into your being and, you know, letting it come out on camera. Um, but you're doing it in the vision that's being expected from the director and writer, writer, right? Yes. 
the job of a producer is you're essentially like the CEO of the company, right? Yes, yeah. Um, and you have like the uh, the chief creative officer in a, in a theater company, and then you have the chief um, uh, executive officer, right? Yeah. So the, the as a producer, you're the chief executive officer and you're working in conjunction with the director who's the chief uh, creative officer. Uh, officer and the whole the hope is that there's it's a it's a harmonious marriage right of the two Mm -hmm. um so but as a producer you have you essentially you you may have the weight of the world on your shoulders right Mm -hmm. you're seeing so much money over a period of several months like first of all you get money you get millions of dollars yeah and then over such a short period of time it's being spent 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 everywhere everybody wants money they want this paid for that paid for right and it's happening so quickly that it becomes um it's stressful highly highly stressful of course yeah. uh, but at the same time you're it's sort of like feeling like you're 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 building something and you're part of that creative team and the the executive team and you're you're eventually going to have something that you can proudly say hey this is our baby you know, as an actor, you, I feel like what you are is you're going into a house that the framework is there and you're going to now build the the walls and then paint the walls and you're going to hang up the paintings in a, in a couple of rooms or what, if it's a humongous role in many rooms, right? Mm-hmm. If it's a small role, maybe one room. And the director is the one who's going to say, this is how I want the house to look by the time we're done and let me be the one who helps you get it there as the director. And mm-hmm. I feel like as a producer, it's sort of like, oh, this is how the house you want to build and want to get it to buy. Well, let me make sure you have all the tools necessary to do it. Until you wear in cans oh, and everyone has talked about uh, you cans. Know what cans? cans is what I call it, con. You oh. call it cans. So some people call it con. I say yeah. tomato, you say tomato. I was not there. It was actually our sales team that was there for oh, this project that there. we're doing. The, you have so quotes you... of me saying things from yeah. con? No, yeah. I wasn't there. No. Okay, so so... I wish I was. But, you know, okay. I'd like to go there with a film that's finished rather than yeah. one that we're, we're just launching. You are working on this film called False Awakening. Is that, yep. is that true? That's the one we're talking about. We're but, going, uh, if yeah. all goes according to schedule, I think we're looking at a... A late summer start for shooting. Mm, 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 mm. So you were, your team was primarily there at the uh, Mache Du Films for uh, uh, putting together, you know, distribution offers, seeing what kind of distribution offers are out there, uh, and you know, introducing the film to the market. So primarily, so this is the film that yeah. you're going to be starting, and you, uh, of course, you and your team yeah. think that. Uh, cancer some of the biggest places the best places rather to announce your next project yeah it's definitely one of the yeah i mean in terms of markets con toronto film market afm in los angeles and then yeah. the berlin those are the big film markets uh mm-hmm. and you know in may it's the con film market so we just got the project to a place where we were ready to start introducing it to the buyers meaning the distributors throughout the world so yeah. we we had our sales team uh, you know, they go out there to the various markets. And this is the first market that we we uh, brought our project to. Anjum, tell me, what is happiness for you in terms of as an artist? 
Hmm. And then as an artist, I of course encompass it with as a as an actor, as a producer, as anything that you are creating. Um, happiness, interesting. Uh, for me, obviously, you, you look. I'll, I'll say the cliched stuff, but it actually is true, right? Hmm. I, I want I want the family, my family, to be happy, hmm. and that puts me at ease. Yes. Uh, because they're happy, then I'm not as stressed, right? Yeah. So, so the goal is to be able to make sure that they're happy and be able to provide in a manner that they can be happy, right? Mm. Um, uh, professionally, happiness comes from um, being able to do the work that I want to do yes. uh, organically and creatively. Yeah. And enjoy the process um, and enjoy the moments. Yeah. Each moment, right? Yes. Uh, the, uh, sometimes I feel like the job of a producer is putting out fires. So you wake up. I mean, I, I wake up every morning with looking at this and knowing <laughs> that I'm going to be, okay, this fire. Okay, got to do this, this yeah. email. Damn, you know, you wake up with all this. Yeah. Uh, and the more fires you're putting out, the more you realize sometimes these fires are like self-inflicted wounds. And I don't mean self-inflicted necessarily from my part, but like from the team or from, from the core group or, or yeah. from, you know, something where we could have avoided it. And that gets mm-hmm. extremely, you know, uh, cumbersome. And, and, I, and I think the goal for me would be to have a well enough oiled machine mm-hmm. where the infrastructure doesn't constantly require putting out the fires. Mm-hmm. You know, and do I think that's there? No, not necessarily. You know, I look forward to a point where I don't necessarily always have to worry about those fires. Let somebody else worry about those fires. Let me really enjoy going on set and watching, you know, everybody doing what they're there to do at their best. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like, you know, that's entertainment to me, watching that happen. Tell me what is one greatest takeaway, if I might say, if I might use the word takeaway, one greatest takeaway for you um, as an actor, as a producer, as an artist, uh, from life itself, uh, what has been that, you know, that, that moment in, the tra- in your trajectory where you felt that this is what it is, you know, this is what, how it should. Such an interesting thing. It's... Um... Mm-hmm. In 1994, <clears throat> and I didn't plan this. I'm literally just coming off the top of my head. 1994, I was doing The Merchant of Venice in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the one that you just mentioned with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. And, and yeah. An inc- incredible group. We had gone from, uh, we'd been in um, Chicago, New York, London, Germany, in uh, Hamburg. And then our last stop was Paris. Yeah. And we, our show was four hours long and we'd go from 8 p.m. to midnight. And, you know, after midnight, we'd go out and have drinks or whatever and, and, you know, be out until three in the morning and come back to our hotel and sleep in until noon or one o'clock and then go back to, you know, our, our cycle of doing the play from eight o'clock to midnight and then once again going out. So we had a bar, uh, kind of a pub across the street from the hotel and 
we would go to it every night after we came back from the theater. We'd go to the, we'd drop our bags in our hotel and go across the street to this pub and be there until three, four in the morning. And I ended up befriending this, the owner of a pub. And at that point I was, I think, 28, 29 years old. Mm. And um, the owner was about my age. And, and I was like really intrigued by the, guy, the fact that this guy owned this restaurant, bar, and he was like 28, 29 years old and a really nice soft-spoken guy. But I, you know, we really never really were able to communicate too well because he spoke French and I don't speak French. And in France, there's this kind of the natives have a tendency to not want to speak in English. Uh, it's sort of and, and it makes yeah. sense. Why should why should they have to speak English? Mm. That's not their native language. Um, so the extent of our conversations were very, very brief. Um, but I really enjoyed his energy just by being with him every night. At mm. the uh, at the pub, mm. one night before the theater, uh, before I had to go to the theater, we had to be at the theater by seven p.m. Before go- going to the theater, I decided I'm going to stop into the uh, the pub and grab a cup of uh, coffee before I go, and and I go in there and nobody's there except me and, and the owner, and you know we're looking at each other and laughing and really we can't communicate. And he makes me the coffee just because I've been able to say cafe or whatever. Uh, and, he's, and he's made this coffee and he gets a phone call. And I'm drinking my coffee and he answers the phone and, and he's listening and he keeps listening and, and, uh, and then he hangs up the phone. And he looks at me and he's in tears. Mm. And um, he had just found out his father passed away. And somehow he communicated that. I don't speak French, mm. you know, and he doesn't speak English. But I know I left that pub that night to go to the theater, having sat there with him, hugged him, consoled him, mm. never speaking one word of French. Yeah. But recognizing, you know, humanity within each other. So to me, that's what, that's what art is about, right? It's mm. recognizing the human soul in each other, even though we come from different parts of the world, we speak different languages, but ultimately we, we speak the same language, right? Mm. Beautiful, Anjul. Beautiful. Tell me, tell me, Anjul, about one great advice, or one advice, it doesn't need to be great, one advice that you would like to put across out there to people who are just trying to, you know, you can't... You, quickly climb the ladder and be up there uh, in whatever form as an artist or just as an artist uh, wanting to express themselves. What's that one great, greatest or one, uh, one thing that they should look out for? Um, find your own true path. Yeah. Don't, don't like uh, when I first started off, I remember we would have seminars in New York for NYU and it'd be like Spielberg is coming to speak or, you know, somebody humongous yeah. was coming to speak. And I know a lot of people would get so excited. Oh my God, we got to go. We got to go. And, and like, it was sort of like, Oh, they have the magic wand. They're going to hand us the magic wand and mm-hmm. we'll all of a sudden become that, you know, but, for me, I always found like, you know, look, I'm going to go there. Granted, we're going to find some, some, you know, creative uh, uh, teachings that might be useful for us in the future. But we're not going to walk out of there with some magic wand to be able to say, hey, 
Spielberg anointed me and I'm the next one. You know? <laughs> and, and you can't, you can't rely on that. You, ha you have to find your own true path and absorb from the Spielbergs of the world, absorb from them and, and say that, look, whatever, you know, cinema that they're making that's, that I find exciting is a, becomes a part of me because I find it exciting, because I experience it on an emotional level that when I create my art, not Spielberg's art, my art, it, yeah. that art will also be emitted through it, through what yeah. I'm creating. Yeah. You know? Ultimately, yeah. what I'm saying is it's your art you got to create, yeah. not anybody else's. Yes, yes, totally. Find your own true path, find your own yeah. voice, stick to it. Exactly. I think that's beautiful. Anjul, thank you so much uh, for being part of the podcast and thank for you. this great uh, you know, conversation, your anecdotes, which were very touching. And I hope the listeners are going to really take a lot from it. So thank you so much and you oh, have thank a you. good night. Thank you. And for me, the key takeaways has been that stop defining and dissecting. Start living find your own happiness as an artist. Do not forget the three P's, which is patience, persistence, and perseverance. Recognize humanity in everyone, every single person that you bump into. And most importantly, find your own path. And no one has the magic wand, not even Spielberg. That's it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed getting this to you. Take good care of yourself, and I'll see you guys soon, hopefully next week. And don't forget to follow the updates on the show on our Insta and Twitter handles, Metaphysical Lab. And of course, you can find me on LinkedIn.